Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Steve Edwards. Hello, from Portland. Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv, rocking my quarantine shave. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you quarantined from Pleasant Grove with my quarantine stubble. Stubble. I'm stubble. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest, and that's Danny Thompson. Danny, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Danny Thompson. I am a software engineer. I am a meetup leader with a group called GDG Memphis, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free, and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat, and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the 5 bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. Now, Dan and I are fighting over whether or not <laughs> which one of us invited you on. But uh, yeah, you've got a really I interesting did. story. I did. I'll arm wrestle you later. Um <laughs> But but yeah, uh, do you want to just give us a little bit of your background? Because when we talked, you just had this really, really interesting story. Sure. So my background is I have a PhD in frying chicken. So I worked in gas stations for over 10 years frying chicken. And I found myself in a situation where I wanted to change it and I just didn't know how. And I found out tech was a viable opportunity. For me, I always thought tech was for the PhDs and the rocket scientists of the world. I didn't know it was something for someone like me. And I actually found my way into tech because of a rapper. This rapper was being interviewed because he invested $10 million into a tech company. And when asked why, he said he was learning how to code. And it completely blew my mind. I didn't know this was possible. And next thing I know, I find myself on freecodecamp.org and I start learning how to code from there. And I go to my very first meetup and you know, at this time, I know about HTML, CSS. I made a very simple application that could take an image and add some coloring to it. So essentially, I could cure cancer with code at that point in my life. And from there, you know, I go into this meetup and people are talking, you know, I realize I don't know anything. I, I thought I knew everything and I know nothing. People are talking about like Java and C Sharp and, you know, SQL. And these are foreign languages to me. But at that point, I got hooked. And I said, I realized very quickly that I'm excluded from the conversation, but I don't want to be excluded anymore. I want to be included. So I just continued to study and learn and grow. And it, that meetup changed my life. That, it changed everything for me. And so just out of curiosity, what was your PhD thesis on? Was it uh, different methods of frying or maybe who makes the best fried chicken or... Uh... How can we stuff the most amount of calories into one leg? And oh, from okay. there, you know, <laughs> we kept going and going. What, like, was your, honestly, what was your defense? I, I mean, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> honestly, uh, I've been to some places chicken, they need a PhD in when to change the oil. But. Yes. <laughs> so, so true. 
You know, I always say when I show up to the gas station, I was, I was wearing a size medium shirt. I'm, it's not medium anymore. But, you know, <laughs> that chicken went somewhere. But it was a great experience. And I'm, I'm happy for it. And I'm happy that I went through it. And it provided for my family. So I'll never regret it. So how long ago you... was that? I left. I started learning how to code a little over three years ago. Nice. Actually, I can tell you the exact month. It was, it was April of 2017. I'm a big believer in writing my goals down on index cards. And I placed them on my wall between my computer and my TV. So if I'm ever slacking off, I see them. And it kind of reminds me like, okay, I'm about to binge watch five Netflix episodes. Have I done enough towards what I'm trying to reach? Or maybe I just watch one and spend the other four hours doing something productive towards what I want to do. So I still have that card up from April 2017 of when I said I'm going to become a developer. And so yeah, I wrote that down on that piece of paper. You're, you're really goal-oriented. Go, good for you. I have... Like I have this thing where I can envision what I want and I become very laser focused to it. So even for me, and it's, sometimes it's a curse, to be honest, because I turned down six jobs in tech before I accepted my first one because it wasn't what I envisioned. So I didn't take them. And sometimes it can hurt you in that sense. But I knew exactly what I wanted and I didn't want to take anything as a substitute. I didn't want Splenda when I wanted sugar, you know. And so what did you want? I wanted a place where I could grow. Essentially, I like upward growth potential. I wanted a place where I could learn a lot of things. So I had learned Java and Angular, and that was my stack. And the company I went for that I ended up taking the position with, they were in that language, but they wanted me to continue learning, which is something I really wanted, as opposed to just sticking in one little pigeonhole of development. And so a lot of the companies I was going for, they were great companies, especially for you know our area, but there was no growth available. There was no way to go upward. I was talking to developers that were still stuck in the exact same spot they were six, seven years ago working there. And I didn't want that for me. But the other thing was with that, I utilized those opportunities to bring other people into those positions. Last year, I was able to help 44 people land their first jobs in tech. And it was through that momentum, I created a whole network where people were talking to me about companies that were hiring, talking to me about you know positions that were available. And instead of me going for them, I would send other people. You said that you, you following that experience, watching the rapper talk about learning to program, you dis- and, that, and then the meetup, you decided to learn to program. Can you talk about the process of how you learn to program? Because we know several ways that people can go about it. What, what was your route? So for me, the only, the rapper was extremely pitiful for one reason. I just didn't know it was possible. Once I knew it was possible, nothing in the universe could distract me or detract me from my goal at that point. That was it. I was, lo- I was locked and loaded. That's where I was going. So for me to learn, I started on freecodecamp.org. And that's the one website that I will recommend time and time again, because what I see with a lot of tutorial websites, and I have a lot of beginners come up to me and I try to offer them advice. Most of them are almost hand-holding you through the process to where you're not really retaining anything. Whereas Free Code Camp just gives you enough to where now you have to search for the answers. And I'm a big believer in when you're faced with an error and you're in that pursuit of that Google search, trying to find it, you're learning more in that Google search than you are from any video tutorial. And that's why I have three rules to become a better developer fast. And there are ABL, ABB, CCC. ABL, always be learning. ABB, always be building. CCC, code, code, code. 
always be learning, learn through multiple methods and mediums, whatever you have available to you, use it. And I, I'm a big believer in learning from two different teachers because no two teachers teach exactly the same. One teacher may miss something that another teacher picks up on. Always be building, build. In tutorials, nothing breaks. In real life, everything breaks. Even a simple CSS attribute can break your whole site. Build, and when you're faced with those errors, don't find the easiest solution. Find it on your own. Don't run back to a safety net. And code, code, code. Let those fingers dance on that keyboard. The only way the, con the concepts become permanent is by putting your fingers on that keyboard and writing them out. So do that. And that's the same three lessons that I give to everybody. And I think if you utilize that on free code camp, you're going to go very far. And then you can start looking at outside uh, mediums where you can get, you know, front end masters at Egghead IO or Udemy or YouTube. But the one thing I always say about YouTube is it's worth all the money you didn't pay for it. Anybody can throw up a video and it could be terrible or it could be fantastic. It's dealer's choice at that point. So I, I've noticed, I mean, you've probably seen this too. A lot of people, they get frustrated when they encounter errors initially and they're like, oh, and they feel like it's counterproductive. They're like, oh, I'm just stuck on this error. I can't, you know, but figuring out that it was a smart quote that's an important step. Like it might take you four hours to figure out it was a smart quote that was your problem. But like th those, those encountering problems are not, and you know, in the beginning, they're not counter learning. They are part of the learning process. They're necessary. I just wanted to uh -huh. add in that a lot of times I wind up failing on stuff. I mean, code or other things, right? And it forces me to rethink how I'm doing things. And so it's not just the, oh, this is wrong or this is, you know, there's a better way to do it. But it's also just the idea of, oh, maybe I ought to approach this in a completely different way. And it turns out that the new way is a better way. You know, I, I love that. And one thing that I always say is I love failing. I love failure. Failure to me and facing an error to me just means I'm removing one obstacle on my way to my goal or to success or to like finishing this application. When you fail, you know, okay, once I solve this, that error is out of the way and I'm closer to where I need to be. Or you could be like me sometimes and create 7,000 more obstacles. You never know. I mean, you fix one bug, you got 100 more that pop up. But failing is the best thing you could ever do for yourself because that's when you're realizing how far can you go? How far can you go past fixing this? And for me, failure is just one thing that you're going to move on your obstacle success. And once you get to where you want to be, it's worth that much more. Yeah, there's a, a couple points I want to address real quick. There's, you know, a famous quote by Ed, I think it's by Edison, where he talks about, you know, all the attempts that it took him to get the light bulb right. And he said, basically, you know, if it took, you know, 500, we figured out 499 ways that didn't work, you know, along those lines. And then the way I look at it is from, you know, I'm part of a, a fire department here. And one of the things that our training department always says is anytime we do a drill, we have two results. We have successes and we have opportunities. So you have successes. Yeah, this worked. We did it right. And then you have opportunities, things that didn't work right, but that's an opportunity to figure out, okay, we know that didn't work. What does work? So that's always been one of my favorite phrases since I've learned that one. And then in terms of YouTube, you know, you mentioned how, you know, it's like the web. Anybody can throw anything out there. And one of the things you sort of learn with YouTube is, as with anything else, you sort of winnow out, winnow the bad stuff out and figure out, okay, where's the good channels? Who are the people that put up the good stuff? Eric Hanchett, you know, who was on the podcast recently, and I've sort of got to know a little more on his own podcast, Self-Taught or Not, they did a thing where they went and listed like 10 channels that are really good for developers on YouTube because they're people that put stuff out. It's good stuff. 
people get to know them and, and, you know, they have really good reputations because they're always putting out good stuff. So, you know, I've, I learned development the same way as you did in terms, in terms of being self-taught having to wait in there and figure out what works and what's not. And eventually you figure out, you throw away the chaff and keep the weed. And so it's just a matter of sometimes listening to other people, Hey, what's good channels. And other times you figure out for yourself, you know, you try somebody else's tutorial and it fails and you figure out, I probably don't want to follow this guy too much. You know, so it's just a matter of figuring out on your own. Since he's such a shy and quiet person, I would like to say that AJ also has an excellent YouTube uh, channel with uh, good videos for people who are, you know, learning learning stuff in, in the computer field. So, yeah. Thank you. One thing I would say to Steve, number one, that quote that you were trying to reference is, I have not failed. I found 10,000 ways that don't work. There that's go. a quote that I even have written on my wall. Uh, to remind me that, you know, failure is okay. And I just kind of wanted to chime in with, you know, even slightly off topic, but, you know, you said you're a firefighter. You know, I thank you for everything that you do and all the firefighters and, you know, civil servants. If it wasn't for you guys, I don't know who'd be doing it. So thank you for being awesome and phenomenal and everything that you do. But back to what we were saying before, failure is one of the best things that you could ever go through. But talking about failure, and you were, uh, and based on your description, my understanding that at least initially you were studying by yourself. Uh, you were using online resources, but you were essentially on your own. So when you did run into problems or issues, and you did run in, or you ran into roadblocks of not being able to figure a certain problem out, how did you go about it? I mean, how did you overcome th- those kind of roadblocks? And I'm asking this because uh, my eldest son has actually decided to finally start learning programming on his own. And he's taking this actually pretty, very good online course uh, for learning Python. But he is running into all sorts of issues. And fortunately for him, he has me to (laughs) to fall back on. So whenever he runs into issues, I can you know, help him through. Now, obviously, I need to take really take care that I'm not uh, doing the work for him, that I'm not making it too easy for him, or that whenever I show him something that he actually understands rather than just copied whatever I explained to him. I literally had him go back and like redo all the exercises that I helped him with just to make sure that he actually understood my explanations and wasn't just laying them out based on what I told him. But definitely if if I wasn't around, he did say that he might have quit at, at certain points because he felt that he ran into walls and he wasn't sure how to circumvent them or get over them. So how did you go about it? I love this question for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a very firm believer in you are the byproduct of the people that you choose to keep around you. If you keep amazing developers around you, you will become an amazing developer. If you keep mentally broke people around you, you will become mentally broke, meaning you don't have the drive to want to hit your goals. You don't have the drive to keep going. You're content with not being what you want to be. So for me... That's why I say meetups are so good and so important. When you go to a meetup, you're surrounding yourself with a community of like-minded individuals that love web development or love development in in general. They're coming around one centralized topic to come talk about it, whether it's MongoDB, HTML, JavaScript, whatever it may be. They're all coming together. So now if you're learning in that example, Python, and you go to a Python user group, 
guess what they're going to be talking about? Python. You have a problem? Well, you have Python developers now around you that can help you solve that problem. They can keep you motivated. And if you have a problem, get on that user group Slack channel and send out a message. Things like that will keep you going. And now you're going to make friends that are also in the industry. Now you're networking in a sense. Because if a developer works somewhere and they know, hey, Dan's kid is fantastic at Python development, he's been learning a lot. Now you have a recommendation also. There's so much that goes into just being a part of a community that can keep you where you want to go. That's the reason why I fell in love with meetups. And that's even the one of the main reasons why I started a meetup. Matter of fact, the very main reason why I even started a meetup was I went to a meetup when I was self-learning, just like everybody asked the exact same question, how do you get that first job in tech? And I heard the exact same answer over and over, almost as if they had the answer recorded and they just played it for me. Oh, man, that first job, that's the hardest one you're ever going to find. But if you find that first one, everything after that will come easily. I thought that was the worst answer you could ever tell me because not only did you demotivate and demoralize me towards what I'm doing right now, you haven't given me any action items to work on. But then I realized very quickly Everyone else asking this question is going through the exact same scenario. They don't know how to navigate this unfounded territory. They've never been here. So that's when I started developing my network to help people land jobs. And that's one byproduct of going to a meetup. Now you're meeting people that have connections in the industry that you want to go to. But more than that, you're surrounded by like-minded individuals studying the exact same thing you're studying. So obviously it's going to keep you on track. It's going to help you answer questions. And when you feel like demoralized or like you're not doing something right, you can easily go fall back on your community and get help. So one of the things I've always heard about free code camp, and I've never really partaken it myself. I've just heard Quincy Larson in a number of different places is that you have the community where you can get online and do pair programming with people and, and stuff like that. So how much of that were, were you able to do when you're going through the free code camp curriculum or even outside of that? Because I know that in my own past, when I've had other people that I can bounce ideas off or have somebody look at my code or something like that, it's always been a real big, big help. So how much of that, how much of your coding stuff, I guess, have you done on your own Googling and looking and how much have you done like in close cooperation with somebody else? I think when I was doing free code camp, that pair programming thing didn't exist. I don't know if that's a thing now. I know they have a forum where you can post a question and you know community members can help answer it or whatever it may be. So if they do that now, that's pretty cool. I'm a big Quincy Larson fan. I even did got to do a meetup with him and Kenzie Dodds and high praises to both of them. And I'll always have the highest respect, especially because you know they've both created options for people to learn. And you know, anyone that basically, I'm a big believer in positive impact creates more positive impact. So if you're facilitating the growth for someone else, when they reach their destination, they're going to bring more positivity and help others as well. So I think even, you know, through the platform Quincy Larson has helped create, how many people has he helped reach where they want to reach? And how many people have now turned and gone to help their communities? So I, I, I absolutely love Quincy for that. And I've, the, for me, you know, I think going back to the community, that's how I ended up finding so many mentors. And I had mentors that didn't even know they were my mentor. And I would pester them and come back to them with ideas and, you know, spitball ideas at them and they would answer them. And, you know, I, w- I would always tell them, like, if I'm annoying you, block me. But until I'm blocked, you're letting me know that this is okay for me to ask you questions. 
And they really, <laughs> really, really helped me in a major way in learning everything that I know now. And I have a great group of friends that I talk to almost daily on Slack that we basically found each other through those meetups. And there was a nonprofit boot camp that came to Memphis called Launch Code. And through Launch Code, you know, we all met each other, but our the head instructor was my main mentor. I love everything that they do at Launch Code, and you know, I love. I'll always support you know teaching people for free and things like that. So I, I love that program, and if it wasn't for that program, I wouldn't have met as many people as I've met. From what you're saying, you're really involved in the community. So you're organizing meetups, you're asking and answering questions on various forums, you're helping people land jobs. You know, we we can see you uh, pictures on your wall. You have family as well, and you're working. You're learning. How do you fit that all into your schedule? I mean, and, and also at one po- at what point do you start kind of thinking about like you know yourself and your own personal priorities versus the priorities or the needs of the community? When I was learning how to code, I was working eighty plus hours a week. For me to learn how to code, I had to create hours that didn't exist. So I would wake up every single day, 2, 2, 3, 2 30 in the morning, and I would study before going to work. And I would have about an hour and a half to two hours a day to study. And then I'd go work 12 to 14 hours a day, come home, raise my kid for like seven minutes, and go to sleep and rinse and repeat. Well, through that, I realized before I started waking up early, I would stay up late. And I realized going through that day, my brain was so tired that I couldn't retain anything. So I'd wake up in the morning and I'd study. My brain was so fresh, it was soaking it up all up like a sponge. So even now, I've kind of kept that same habit to where I wake up, you know, on most days, 4, 4.30 in the morning, and I'll start doing things early like working towards my goals, learning new things, developing things, creating things, you know, um, coming up with resources. I, I do that before my workday starts. And that's another reason too, is I don't like to wake up in the morning and then say, you know, I'm waking up because of work. Work shouldn't be my reason to wake up. It, work should just be something I do within my day. So I like to enjoy myself before work. I like to enjoy myself after work. And work is just something I do in the middle. When I just wake up for work, I start feeling kind of miserable. Like, oh, the only reason why I'm even opening my eyes is to come deal with you know, some tickets or whatever it may be. So I'm a big believer in doing things before work. So I'll do a lot of things before work. And my entire house is asleep at that time my wife, my kid. So I can get things done in a very quiet environment and be productive at it. Then my workday starts. They're awake now. We have breakfast together after work. Now I have all this time to where I can play some games with my kid and I can do all these things and I have the rest of the evening. And then I may do you know a couple of things at night, but I have my family time because what I realized working at a gas station, I missed so much in my work life. I missed so much I mean, I miss so much in my personal life as when I was focused on working. I missed a lot of t- moments when my kid was growing up, you know, because I had to earn money for us to live. Now that I have this luxury, I never want to waste that again. I never want to miss these moments. So we're always doing stuff together. We're going places, doing things. And now, luckily, because I'm in tech, like we were just, you know, out of town not too long ago. And I got to work while I was out of town, not missing any time away from anybody. So I don't know if Amy heard, but it turns out that you and she are kindred spirits, that you're both early risers and like to okay. get on in the early morning hours. 
This is uh, quite true. Yes. Sorry. Having uh, server box issues. Uh, so I had to jump off. Yep. <laughs> I, I recently too started doing like 16 hour fasts, which I find like my brain is very clear in the morning when I haven't had like sugar and all that stuff. I'm very inspired by your story though. I missed a lot. So I feel like I won't have the greatest questions, but um, just kind of hearing like your perseverance and kind of the background of where you came from. Definitely. I guess a question, how long have you been in this field now? So I started coding in April of 2017. I've been working for a little over a year. But for me, I could have been here a year and a half ago if I wanted it. Like I was so, I got into this weird thing where I enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it, helping people land their dream job in tech. Like it was, it was almost like a drug. It was so addicting to me. And I just enjoyed helping people navigate that process, getting ready for interviews, kind of coaching them on how to fix their profiles. And, and it got to the point where, you know, I was turning down jobs and sending other people to go to those jobs. And a lot of times those jobs weren't matching what I was looking for. But at the other point of it is I wouldn't even go to that first interview just so I can send four other people to go have a conversation with them. Heard about this book called The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Is that inspiration <laughs> uh, by chance? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That guy, he actually uh, tells you to find, you know, figure out what you want and then, yeah, go find the companies that are going to give that to you. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, as you work through this process, did you, did you apply some of that? You know, it sounds like you weren't willing to just take any job and, and that's kind of different from the way a lot of people approach this. Right. So, you know, I'm very stubborn and I had a very, very clear vision of what I wanted and I could not accept any substitute besides what I had already, what I had in my head. And so I'd go to these interviews. Matter of fact, you know, I, I won't say the company's name because we're still on good terms, but the, there was a company that I interviewed with and halfway through, I realized immediately, like, this is not it for me. So I stopped the interview halfway and I was like, I don't, you know, I value my time and I value yours. I don't want to waste either one. This is just not going to work. But would you come back and speak at a meetup? It was a Zoom interview. He just kind of, Closed the interview and he called me the next day. He said, you know, in all my years, that has never happened. But there must be something very interesting about this group. Yeah, I'll swing by and, and check out what you guys got going on. And then we ended up having a really cool speaker at a meetup. But I, I don't believe in wasting anyone's time. I don't want to waste anyone's. So once I realized that, you know, I cut it off. But I ended up finding my dream job and I'm very happy with where I am. And I preach it all the time. You know, if you're happy where you are and it meets what you want to do, it'll never feel like an arduous task to go deal with it. You, you will be able to handle whatever you do. You'll be able to you know, take random requests and not be upset about it. And on top of that, if it's meeting what you want, like helping you and learning new things and you know, things like that, then perfect. I just wanted to make a quick comment from the other like from the perspective of the other side uh, of the make of the conducting the interview with a person, I've seen situations where people keep uh, make, you know keep going with the interview, even though it's clear that that person will not be hired because they feel like uh, obligated because it it seems rude to cut the the interview short or they and they and they. Also, like when they asked at the end, like, are you going to be in touch with me? They say, yeah, maybe we'll think about it, blah, blah, blah. 
And, you know, some people have called me abrupt in this context or maybe even slightly rude. But I, I like, like you said, I hate wasting people's time and raising false expectations. And if there is an interview going on and like within 10 minutes or 20 minutes, it's clear that this is just not going to happen. I don't really see, you know, I, obviously I don't just disconnect the call or, or tell the person something rude, but I, I, you know, very politely try to convey the, the information that, that this is just not going to happen and to, to stop it there. Because otherwise, like you said, it's, it's mostly a waste of time for everybody. Hopefully I didn't hear I hopefully I don't sound like a jerk. <laughs> no, I completely agree because you know I think and I this is one thing that I value my hours and I try to get a return on my time because then it feels like I'm achieving something. So if I'm spending, you know, a couple of hours at an interview that I know I'm going to hate working here. And I know that just from speaking to the interview, I realize, man, this company is probably gonna not be what I want, or you know, excuse my French, this place probably sucks. Why would I want to waste another two hours, you know, interviewing with someone I don't want to talk to? You know, I think it's better for everybody if we're both up front at that time and say, hey, you know, we need to cut this short. But I, I see the other side of the spectrum, too, is, you know, if you have an interviewer or an interviewee that is extremely excited to be there, do you really want to shatter what they're going through at that moment and say, hey, you know, I realize you kind of suck. This isn't the place for you to work. <laughs> You know, uh, I, I you don't say it that, do that way. Ah, you yeah. don't say it that way. You, you say, you know, this is not. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is not a good fit. Uh, this is, uh, you know, you're a great person, but unfortunately, you're not what we're looking for. You know, because at the end of the day, you're not going to hire them. You're gonna kind of shatter their dream at some point along the line, anyway. In that context. And if you're raising false expectations, you might even do them harm because maybe they'll reject some other offer waiting on you, even though you have no intention of actually hiring them. Well, I think in that scenario, you just kind of cut the interview a little bit short and you say, hey, we have a lot of applicants. So if we contact you, you'll know we're interested. Simple as that. You don't need to tell them abruptly like, hey, this isn't going to cut it or something like that. Just say, if we're interested, we'll contact you. Otherwise, you know, the other way I've approached this myself is also just going in and essentially saying, look, we're looking for somebody that meets these criteria. I know there are companies that, you know, will hire somebody, you know, or are looking for people that meet, the, you know, the criteria that you fit better and, you know, may even tell them to go apply at some other places. You know, I know these couple of companies, if I do, you know, they're looking for somebody more at your level or more with your temperament or, you know, that, that interact with people in a certain way or things like that. Or I may give them feedback and just say, you know what, maybe we are looking for somebody with a little bit more experience. You know, if you went and built a project that looked like this, or if you, you know, did these couple of things that would demonstrate that you can actually do what we need, then maybe we can give you another look next time we're hiring. And the important thing is that, look, you know, it, we all, whenever we're interviewed and we've all been, all been there, it's, it's, you're putting yourself out there. It's kind of like a first date. I mean, it's like when, when you get rejected, it really hurts because you're kind of trying to sell yourself. So ultimately they rejected you. But at the end of the day, you need to remember that they're not rejecting you as a person. They're rejecting you as a candidate for a very specific position. They might be right about it. They might be wrong about it. But you have to remember that, you know, it's it's not a value call on you yourself as a person. That, that's a, that's something that I think that is critical to remember. Jumping back just a, a second to the 
like letting people down softly versus not. I think to me, I think it's a, it's a form of weakness that I personally succumb to, to, to let people down softly be like, Oh, well, you know, for interested, we'll contact you. I, I prefer when it's just like upfront straight, like, but I think you could say it in, you know, in, in a nice way. Like I think what Chuck's was saying was pretty reasonable in terms of, you know, you don't have the skills we're looking for. I, I don't remember the specific example, but there was one time I was interviewing something. And I think the process went like, and I, th- that I felt good about, you know, cause there's definitely times I didn't feel good about the way that I handled things or whatever. I took the, the weak way out or whatever. But one time I, I remember that went fairly well was just like reiterating like, okay, so we're looking for X, Y, and Z. It sounds like your expertise is really in A, B, and C. And it sounds like the career track you want to be on is really in A, B, and C. So maybe this, you know, maybe this isn't that good of a fit, really. Just and and that like that interaction wasn't wasn't bad or awkward because it was it was super clear. You know, we're just having a conversation and they're saying what what they know and what they want to do and where their skills are and where their strengths are. And and it was, I mean, I guess it's not always that easy because sometimes people are too unskilled, but they are doing A, B, and C. They're just not as good at A, B, and C or or whatever. But I, I also like the idea of giving people a chance to prove themselves, you know, say, okay, well, it doesn't look like you're really up to par on A, B, and C, but if you if you can do this task that that requires a person, you know, to be at level seven to, you know, be able to do this task, then then, you know, we should definitely reconsider that. And then a lot of times they're just not going to do it. I did have one occasion where the person got really angry because they spent a lot of time on the task and they didn't enjoy it. And they came back and I was just kind of like, well, if you really didn't enjoy this and it took you a really long time to do it, like it's just not a good fit. And they were really upset about that because they, you know, had spent so much time on it and it was like, and they hated it. It's like, well, you, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, but I will add that a special place in hell is reserved for those companies that don't get back to you. Amen. amen Dang it. Amen. No, I definitely agree with that. They they should be getting back to you one way or the other, right? We hired somebody else. You you know, you 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 weren't what we look we were looking for. But the other thing, also to AJ's point, and and this was man, it was my first job out of college. I was actually running the tech support team, but yeah, the development team had some guy come in and he did the whole interview with them, you know, they, they made him right on the whiteboard because they were those kinds of people. I mean, talented engineers, but anyway, um, and then they gave him a side project and gave him two hours to build it and he failed to get it done. And so they told him, thanks, goodbye, you know, and basically said, well, you didn't get it done. So no, well, he went home and he ground the thing out and then he came back the next day and showed him the code and they wound up hiring him. So there's something to be said for, Look, you know, if 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 I'm wrong, you know, prove me wrong. You know, I want to be wrong, and and have the best person in there if if that's the case. But you know, given the information that we have, uh, I think that kind of feedback is is actually helpful. And yes, I completely hundred percent agree. Get back to people and let them know either why you're not going to hire them, or maybe it was look, you know, you lined up real well. There was just somebody that lined up a little bit better. That goes to one thing that I always tell people applying for a job, that if you can demonstrate passion, an employer will show interest. And by going home and doing that project, 
you're showing that you're passionate about what you're doing. That speaks volumes. But the other thing is a lot of people, when they go into interviews, they have what I call like a begging mindset. Oh, just give me a chance. I just need a chance. I think that is the worst thing you can do in an interview because haven't you noticed when someone's asking you for a favor, you immediately like, oh, this is, what is this going to take out of me? You know, what do I got to do to make them happy? Even if it's a friend, it's almost as if it's a deterrent. Don't go in with a begging mindset. You shouldn't go in begging for a chance. What you should say is, hey, I'm coming here. I'm bringing you value. I am valuable. I will bring value to this team. If you can demonstrate that you're bringing value, if you bring value, they will bring a checkbook. Simple as that. No one has ever turned on an opportunity to make money one way or another. And please, please do not say ever when you're asked, so what is it about this position that's interesting to you? Do not respond, oh, I'm just looking for a job. <laughs> Don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's one piece of honesty. That just don't, don't say that. If you're a front-end developer looking for remote work, then I recommend G2i, a React and React Native-focused hiring platform that will connect you directly with their clients that need your skill set. What makes G2i a unique hiring experience is that they spend the time marketing you to their clients of your choice. G2i is a team of engineers that technically vets you up front. If you pass their vetting, their clients have agreed to skip their initial interview process, saving you time and energy getting your next gig. They take care of all the hard work for you so you can get focused on development. To join G2i, go to g2i.co and apply. So that's good advice. I was actually recently talking about kind of these different like strategies to someone and I feel like it is possibly slightly different when you are a new developer as opposed to someone who has been in the industry for a while. I am very happy with my salary. I have never, I think we've talked about this before. I've never negotiated ever. And the I've told that, you that's a bad thing. <laughs> I'm very happy with my salary. Uh, and so what I've done, which is the truth, my first job, they kind of asked me expectations and I gave a pretty wide range, definitely on the low end. And, and the truth was like, I want to find a place that has, you know, that where they do testing and there'll be some sort of mentorship and, um, wanted to do full stack. And so I viewed it as like setting up my career for success in the long haul, less about salary. And, and, and I say what, like, I feel like it's slightly different depending on where you are in your career progression because, and where you are in the interview progression. Now, if you're talking to a recruiter, like their job is to get talent for the cheapest price. And so if you're a brand new developer and you are doing a phone screen with the recruiter, you most definitely want to not give a number, not negotiate and just say, I, you know, I do this if, if it's true, like I'm, I'm in it because I love it. And, you know, I love learning and, and those kinds of things. And because that's going to be very compelling to a recruiter to get you onto the next process and actually get like a technical screen with somebody because that's somebody who's new, like that's what you need. Now, again, like I haven't negotiated even to my career, like at this point, like six years in, but I feel like, you know, a little bit further and you could possibly negotiate more. So again, that's just my experience. And I feel like it's worth sharing because it has worked well, unless I'm some sort of outlier. Well, I agree I would... and I disagree. Because if I may comment. <laughs> I think we uh, all my, have my, a comment my, on this. Yeah. My, my, look. You may decide not to discuss your monetary expectations with the recruiter, 
But at the end of the day, if there's going to be too large of a discrepancy, then it might not be worth all the effort. And so you do want to get it out of out of the way at a certain point. So either they come to you with a very sufficiently clear description of the type of role that they want to give you, and then you can kind of surmise the the compensation that will come along with it. Or you need to put that out there because, like I said, if you're going to go to that entire process of interviews and then it'll just you know disintegrate because your expectations are too divergent. Well, you've wasted everybody's time, especially your own. One thing I'll, I'll, I'll jump on two points. The first is, you know, one thing I always tell people when, they're, especially when they're going for an interview or to create their profiles on LinkedIn. There's a quote by Muhammad Ali says, "I pretend to be the champ, even if you're not. When you do anything, you need to show that you're the best at what you do, in a sense. So, if I'm going to an interview, I'm showing that same thing that I'm." I'm very powerful in what I'm doing. Same thing like when for my first job in tech, I negotiated the salary. And what's funny is, you know, I come from gas station background where we deal with vendors and we're always negotiating price points. So when they gave me the salary, it was almost a reflex to negotiate it. And as I was saying it, I was pretty much regretting it at that moment. Like, this is my very first job. They're taking a chance on me. Do I need to be doing this? And they not only did they, they actually rejected my negotiation and came back higher. And I think through that, I proved that I wanted to be with them. They wanted to be with me. And they're now at a level to where we're both going to be content for a long period of time. I think one of the biggest things for companies is it's expensive to train new people. And there's a, I mean, any developer that joins a job, you're never going to be at your peak on day one. It takes a while to learn the code base and learn how the company works and all the things that they expect. So that's an expensive training period. Would it be easier just to give this person the right amount of money up front and then they don't leave right away? And I think that's a, a fair expectation from any company and any future employee to want. So if they can come with a dollar amount that makes you happy to stay, why not do that? Why keep it so low to where you're almost regretful for a long time? It's funny how companies brag that they have the best engineers, but they pay the industry average. <laughs> yeah, I, I have two comments on this. One is, is the, and just to tie back to what Danny said before we started talking about negotiating salaries and then to Amy's point, one thing that I find is that confident people are really attractive. You know, they're attractive to companies, they're attractive to, you know, potential suitors you know in life it it attracts friends it builds charisma and so if you're if you're out there and you're acting like not that you deserve it but that you're you're competent that you and that you know that you're competent right you know you can do the job that that's really really attractive to people and throwing out a counter offer is just another way of demonstrating your conf- confidence that you're the person that they want the the other point that i was going to make and this is also to both what Dan and Danny said is I've talked to a lot of companies that they go out and they, you know, they'll get they'll get in touch with me and they're like, you know, all these developers, we need a senior dev. And this probably happens about once a month. You know, usually it's in the the Ruby space, just because I've been in that space forever. But yeah, they're like, we need a, a senior developer. Do you know any? And I'm like, well, for one, I don't know anything about your company. And so I'm not necessarily comfortable referring somebody to you, right? Because I want them to be happy with wherever they end up. But the other thing is, is then I'll turn around and I'll say, well, if you can't find a senior, why don't you hire a junior? And they turn around back and say, 
well, they always leave because they're not making enough. And my point to them is, is, okay, well, once you've trained them for a year, give them a raise, right? Pay them what they're worth. Because if it's worth it to somebody else to hire them, you know, for 20 or 30,000 more than they're making with you, then it's worth at least that much for you to keep them because you've already trained them. That's such a good point. And Memphis, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. So Memphis in particular is very old school and they have these crazy expectations for developers. They want someone that has, you know, 20 years experience in Dino and 10 years experience in Angular 9. And they don't want to take the juniors. They don't want to look at someone that doesn't have crazy levels of experience, even though one thing with Memphis, we have a, a lack of talent and jobs. What happens is we end up training talent here and they can't find good jobs and then they go to other markets. So we keep getting caught in the cycle of not having people to fill valuable positions. So I helped organize a meeting with 70 of the biggest city leaders in tech. And I said, we have a big problem. And if we don't, if we don't solve this, what are we going to do? Because I truly believe Memphis has all the potential to become one of the next biggest tech hub cities in America. We have so many global corporations here. Their headquarters are here. FedEx, AutoZone, all these companies originate from this town. And we, they're hiring developers. You know, I helped bring quite a few jobs last year just showing what we have over here. So if we don't produce this talent, if we don't keep jobs for the junior developers that will become senior developers that will meet the criteria you're looking for now, if we don't do that, then what do we do when we have more jobs than we have talent for? My company actually opened up an office in Denver because they realized, oh, there's no way we're going to get all the developers that we need here. They didn't want to, they had to. So if we don't produce and provide these opportunities, what can we do? I'm curious of the people that you interface with or are trying, you know, are new to the field, trying to get uh, their first positions, like what is mostly their background? Do you also see, like, do you also encounter college graduates or people that uh, have uh, gone through boot camps or other people that studied like you on their own? So what's the mix? So, okay, this, this will be a slightly long answer though. So for me, I have a mix of college grads, who I love to help, self-taught learners, which I love to help. But more so, Memphis is one of the lowest cost of living cities in America. We have an area in particular where the average household income is $18,000 a year. What I'm trying to do is help transform these areas by utilizing tech. So what I'm doing is if I can take one of these people, provide them resources, provide them a meetup space, provide them mentorship, can I take one of them and put them in a developer job to where they're making 60 grand a year? And if so, they're now generating the income of three and a half households. If I can get 20 people from that same area, I just changed the neighborhood. Now they're paying more in taxes. The schools are getting more resources. Now their own children are getting more resources. Now we're deterring gang violence. We're deterring drug activity. We're doing all this just by facilitating the growth. This is how we close the income gap. The problem is, and what I truly believe is a lot of these people from these areas don't know it's possible the same way I didn't know it was possible. Once I knew it was possible and there was a path there, I flew to it and it worked. So I'm, a lot of the people that I helped last year come from these areas. So now we're starting to see this trickle effect of where now, and this goes to another point, you know, I always get from people, well, when they get start making more money, they leave. Not necessarily because... If you're already comfortable with where you are, what, necess what necess necessity do you have to leave that area? You know, I grew up 
pretty damn poor. My mom still lives in the same area. And people say, you know, why don't you, you know, what does your mom feel when she sees where you live as opposed to her? I said, she's having the time of her life. She doesn't know any difference. She's, this is where she's grown up. This is the environment that she's always lived in. This is where her friends are and her family are. Why does she want to leave that? It's the same thing for anybody. If you're in an environment where you're comfortable and you, you know, you've got roots in, you're not going to leave just because you're making more money. So now you're investing back directly into those local economies. You're investing into those neighborhoods. You're spending more at this corner store. You know? You're spending more at the grocery store. So those taxes are circulating in that area. So just by providing resources and uh, facilities of growth, you're changing that area. So right now I'm even you know, helping to raise, I think I said this earlier, I'm helping to raise money for a single mother to basically go to a boot camp. She needs the, the help in learning and they do classes at night. So she has four kids and this is the way that she can organize that. And this is someone that's making $18,000 a year right now as a restaurant worker. She's a waitress. So if we can help someone like that, you're not only just changing her life, but her four kids are having their lives change. Now they have more resources. They have a, a parent that's going to be around more. They have a parent that can provide more learning opportunities for their kids. So why not explore something like that as opposed to you know, just saying, let me focus on one sector. Let's focus on them all. Let's help everybody in any way we can. Positive impact creates more positive impact. If we can, you know, create that positive impact in that area that needs it, it's going to trickle all throughout the city. Are you getting any sort of assistance from the municipality or the local government or whatever? So I'm very excited that the city of Memphis has seen a lot of things that we're doing. And they just hosted their very first hackathon where they were coming up with ideas to real-life solutions in the city. And we had developers from all over the city, you know, volunteer for it and come out. And Memphis saw like, whoa, we have some potential here that we didn't know existed. And I think sometimes, especially with local governments, it takes being slapped in the face with reality before they're like, oh, there's something here. So I think that opportunity where we carried a lot of the load, you know, and I was happy, I was more than happy for my group, GDG Memphis, to be a part of that. And the organizer, Ellen Paddock, which is, you know, phenomenal. She really took a lot on her shoulders to make that happen. And she fought a lot with the local government. And now we've got something that's going to be continuous. And now they're looking at how can we do a hackathon for kids and how can we do this and that. And now I'm actually a board advisor, a STEM advisor on the Board of Education for Memphis to help change the curriculum for the high school students to be more relevant to today's needs. Because a lot of them are graduating and they're not taking STEM classes in college unless they're being forced to because there's no real need there. And they're finding out that they're ill-prepared for even an intro to comp sci class. So I think we have some real potential to make some big change, especially in the younger generation. One question that I wanted to ask a while back, and yeah, I guess we're coming close on time. So this will be it, at least for me. And, and I apologize if you already talked about this, but... I know for me, I was not really completely clear if I was going to enjoy programming initially. And I always go back to, because I used to listen to Ruby Rogues like way back when. And I think Katrina. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think like Katrina Owen used to be on there and she talked about this book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And kind of one of the underlying premises of the book was that if you get really good at something, you will eventually enjoy it. And I would say that has definitely been the case for me. I'm saying the latter that like I, I've, I'm not I'm not declaring myself great. I'm just saying that, you know, I've, I've worked hard and 
you know, moderately know what I'm doing now and, and I really enjoy programming. But I say that because kind of like you were saying at the beginning, Danny, about like not sure if this was a career path for you. And I mean, I definitely didn't think that I was like smart enough or, or any of that stuff. But the the book like really, you know, encouraged me to go forward. And now that I've been in it for a while, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And, you know, not just that, but as with a lot of people, like was in a not great situation and it's provided me the ability to, you know, provide for myself and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I guess my question is like, do you did you enjoy it immediately or do you think you've like learned to love it the more that you've done it? So I enjoyed it almost immediately. I think at first I was very confused at where I was going. You know, we take for granted how comfortable we are with HTML to where we don't realize how daunting it is to someone that doesn't know it. Essentially, they're learning a brand new language. But not only are they learning a new language, they're learning a new way to think. So it's scary in the beginning. You know, there's a lot that's unknown. But you know, I always say persevere and go through it. And as you keep going through it and you're uncovering all these new things to learn, you're just scratching the surface. And I always say to say that you're a developer is to say you're on a lifelong journey of learning. Like it yeah. never stops. There's always new updates. There's always new things to learn, new frameworks. You know, Dino just came out. And, you know, if you were on Node before, now that's something you want to explore as well. To echo on one thing as well, I always tell people, when you're learning, keep learning, keep growing. You're always going to be learning. But when you're looking for a job, a lot of times it's hard for someone who's just entering that market and they don't know how to make it happen. And they keep getting hit with no, no, no. If you really want that job in tech, you need to be so undeniably good that they have no choice but to accept you. They need to be like, man, I wish I could turn this guy down, but he's so damn good. He brings so much value to this team. I got to have him. He knows his stuff so well that I just have to have him. A lot of times with you know, self-learners, they rush through things and they rush to the point where they're like, if I hit this milestone, jobs will want me. And I try to always tell them, slow down. Comprehension overcomes completion. Meaning if you understand it, you'll reach your destination much faster, and much easier. But if you're going through it, and it goes back to another point that I always say, I'd rather have no opportunity but be prepared for one than to have an opportunity not be prepared at all. Because when you blow it, not only are, are you blowing the opportunity, you're really going to hurt when it fails. Like nothing hurts more when you go into an interview with a company that you won't really want to be with. And then you realize, oh man, I totally bombed that interview. That's a very painful experience. Instead, I'd rather be very comfortable in my abilities and to echo on one thing as well, to be confident in my skills. A lot of times people associate confidence with being very loud and controlling room. No, no, no. You can be very quiet and be confident. You can be almost an introvert, but you're so confident in that you can develop a web application that that code will speak volumes for you. Be confident in what you know. And when you demonstrate that, everyone will want to have you. And I always say, especially with self-learners or you know, beginner learners, like I want to celebrate your success. I want you to tell me that you succeeded in getting exactly what you wanted and you persevered and you got it. And I, I want to celebrate that for you. But the only way that I could ever celebrate that is if you put your fingers on that keyboard and build things. 
Stop watching so many tutorials that you don't build anything. You can watch a million tutorials and it's worthless if you don't build something with it. So keep building things and in doing so, you're going to solidify your concepts. I got a question for you. Um, Because this is one thing where it seems like a lot of people struggle and need extra guidance. Because, I mean, you're very self-motivated and most people just aren't like that, right? So your story is inspirational, but for a lot of people, it's not going to be something they can really like latch onto because they don't have that inner drive yet or they haven't discovered it or it's just, but uh, you, you disagree with this? So one misconception that a lot of people have about me is I'm not motivated. I've never been motivated. I'm the opposite of motivated. But what I am is I'm driven and my drive is unstoppable. When I pick a goal, I associate my drive with that goal and it will never be stopped. So motivation is almost, you can watch a motivational video and be excited for a couple of minutes, but it dissipates. You need to know, and I always say your goal needs to be so big that it excites you. So like when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, I'm not fighting my way out of bed. I'm excited to get out of bed because I know by putting in this work, I'm getting to the point where I want to be. So it's not motivated because motivation is that emotional feeling. My drive is just that mentality that I have to hit this goal. Okay. Well, the the question I was going to ask is like a, a lot of people have this hard time, you know, you say code, 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 and I 100% agree with you, but they have a hard time figuring out like, what is it that I do? Because they don't necessarily have enough understanding yet to be able to relate like, okay, here's a real life problem. And here's how I could think about it in a way that I could code a solution to like, you know, get into it. So when you're saying code, 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 do you have any tips? Like what should someone code or how should they decide what to code? The answer I've always heard, I'll jump in real quick. Sorry, Danny. You know, when it comes to starting entrepreneurs, starting a business or somebody starting an open source project or whatever, always comes down to find something that scratches your own itch as compared to, hmm, okay, let's see. I think maybe I'll make this product because it looks like there's an opening in the market for this. Or yeah, I think I'll do something like this. If you find something that does a job for you. So, but there's a lot of people that aren't used to that way of thinking. Like, yeah, I know. And it, it, it does take a mindset. But I think once you get to your head around it, then you understand that, okay, it, it's along the lines of the classic line about don't be afraid to ask a question because somebody else it probably has the same question and they're afraid to ask it. Along the same lines, you've got something, say you build up a little app and you throw it out on GitHub. Pretty soon you start seeing people, oh man, I've been wondering how to solve this thing too. And they start jumping in. But this also sort of ties in with the motivation and uh, the drive, you know, however you want to phrase it, I think we're splitting hairs a little bit there. But the point is, you're going to want to work on something that is doing something that has a valid use as compared to some, there's a term I'm looking for, where you make up a, a task just to show something contrived. Okay, as compared to something uh-huh. that's contrived. So, you know, if you find, I'll say, I keep repeating myself here, just find something that is solving a task for you. And that's going to give you drive to do it because you can see, hey, here's a goal that I'm going to reach that's actually going to solve a real life problem. And to me, that's always been the best way to code something, to build something, is to have something real life. I have to give a, real, a concrete example of that. So the company I worked at, I currently work at, which is Wix, the interesting story about them is that the, the people who founded the company originally had a totally different idea about what it is that they wanted to do. And when they started that company, they they came to the conclusion that they needed a website and they were looking for uh, a, a way to get a, a good website relatively cheaply and they couldn't find a tool to do that. So they ended up creating a tool to build websites. And that 
evolved into Wix. That's what Wix is today, a tool for building websites or a platform for building websites. And that was not the original idea. That was just like you said, scratching the itch that they had, and it turned out to be a really, really big itch. Wasn't Slack like a game studio or something? Yes. And then they and I and <laughs> I think that Shopify <laughs> and Shopify. I think they were trying to sell ski equipment or something, and they couldn't find a good software to build an online store, so they ended up creating it, and that's what they do now. So you know a lot, and you know there's a lot to be said for for scratching your own itch. So, so I, I absolutely agree. With well, The question I'm trying to drive at is with people that are not familiar with that concept of scratching your own itch, like, is there any way to give them like a, a booster or a mental model or a, or a way into it? Like one thing I've been absolutely. thinking about is telling people, just try doing things that you do every day, but script them or write a program for it instead. So figure out how to send a text message, figure out how to send an email, figure out how to open up a web browser figure out how to, you know, just like small, tiny automation tasks to kind of prime the pump. That's what I'm asking. Like, how do people prime the pump when they're not yet in that mindset of scratching an itch because they haven't, they haven't yet realized that they have the power to change the world? So the exact example I give people, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Like you said, what do you do every day? If you ask someone like, what do you do every day? It kind of almost is a question that draws a blank right? You can't really think like, if I put you on the spot, like, what do you do all day? And you'll just come up with some vague answers. You can't think of the minute tasks. Netflix. But I always say, Netflix. Yeah. Well, I always say, look at the last 10 things you Googled. You Googled them for a reason, right? What is the last 10 things you searched? I Obviously, if you're building. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. I always say, look at the last 10 things you searched, build one of them. Like, did you search a dog grooming store? Well, time to build a dog grooming app. Like, did you just search, you know, the ice cream parlor around your block? Build that website, you know? It doesn't have to be something so insane. Like, and, and I mean this in the most nicest way possible. No one is curing cancer by building a side project here, right? You're building it for practice. You're building it for a portfolio item. Maybe you might hit something. But for the most part, I think you're just padding it out to try and get that first job. Well, pad out things that you are going to enjoy building. Pad out things that you are going to understand the complexity of. Like, you know what the ice cream store uh, serves. You know it's soft serve. You know it's sorbet or whatever. So build that website around them. You can't think of your favorite sports team. Think of you know the, the car you drive. Let's make a website analyzing that. Or build a phone website. Every single person has a phone. Build a website that demonstrates why your phone is awesome. Or build a website why your wife is always right. Or build a website why you know you you go do the things that you do. It doesn't have to be so complex. Start small, and then as you start building your mentality of, you know, now I'm thinking in algorithms, now I'm thinking of this, now you can solve bigger problems. But start small. We all started small. We all, I always say in tech, we all started very dumb and we learned our way to where we wanted to be. So just learn your way, and then you'll start learning how to solve bigger problems. By the way, a great example of just that, Amy, I think you brought him as a guest talking about boot camps. And he talked about the app that he was building, which I think was for amusement parks, for rides, and because he loves it. So that's the app he decided to build. So that's a great example of that, I think. I'm building an app for ice cream because I love ice cream. What's wrong with ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're we're running a little out of time. Anything else we want to get in last minute before we go to picks? So real quick, one of the, you know, we were talking about going into interviews and being confident and not being, please, please just give me a job. 
to me, that, that struck an interesting note because that's true anywhere, <laughs> not just in terms of, of applying for a job. You see that when it comes to interviews, like promotional interviews within a company or a public safety department or whatever. The, the one that struck the chord for me is you can see that in personal relationships. You know, I've got kids that are 20 and 17 and they're in the dating world. And, and there's a famous book by, not a famous book, there's a book I read by a guy, Jim Dobson, where he's talking about relationships. And he talks about, you know, the time where he met his wife and he decided that he, you know, this is when they were in college. And he said, you know, he decided he wasn't going to be the, oh, please, please, you know, take me. He, he went to her and said, you know, this is where I'm going in life. This is what I want to do. I would really love for you to come along with me. You know, if you want to come with me, great. If not, then we'll need to figure something out. And that was the big changing point in their relationship because she saw the confidence in him. You know, he wasn't saying, you got to come with me and do what I want to do. He said, here's where I want to go. And I would like you to come with me. Come with me. He wasn't begging. He was just confident and stated his case. And that was the big turning point. And so I see that with, you know, relationships uh, with my kids, you know, with people that are wanting to date or, or in a relationship with. And I just tell them always have confidence and, but don't sell yourself short, you know, have your pride, have your confidence. And that's what will be attractive to people is that you have that confidence, that you have the pride and that you, you're not just going to do whatever it takes, you know, for anybody else. You hit on a, a point that I try to, so I give a lot of speaking engagements and I go talking at places that, you know, want to hear me talk for whatever reason. But I was talking at Google and I was talking to a room full of prisoners learning how to code in a prison. And I gave both the exact same advice. Be confident in what you're doing. Don't beg for anything because when you beg, obviously it's a deterrent, but more so be passionate about what you're doing. Because even if you're at the lowest level or the highest level, if you still have that passion, you're going to be able to achieve whatever you're set out to do. And the same thing with the prisoner, you know, the deck is already stacked against you. They'd, most people don't want you to succeed at that point. So you need to be so undeniably good that no one can say no. You need to be so passionate that it's infectious. And you need to be so confident that no one can doubt you. Simple as that. Kind and of, I think that applies that's to That's a high bar. <laughs> I mean... Uh, Kind of related to that, and that that'll be my final question. So, when somebody goes to an interview, do you have recommendations of how to best prepare, or do you or do you actually help people prepare to uh, ahead of interviews? Sometimes I help them prepare, especially if they're local to my market. I I try to learn as much as I can about other markets when people are asking for my help, but it's it's very hard. You know, there's a lot of unknowns. So right now. Two main markets that I pay attention to is Atlanta and Memphis because they're very similar in a lot of respects. But Atlanta has definitely more opportunities right now as opposed to Memphis. But one thing that I always say is learn the broad strokes of the company that you're going to. Like if you're going to XYZ company, at least know what they do. At least know, man, what their mission statement is. Like, are they trying to ship packages? Well, why are they trying to ship packages? A lot of this stuff is on like the about page of most company websites. So at the very least, spend 10 minutes on that company website. Get an idea. Because what's the worst thing to walk into a company and they're like, you know, so why do you want to work here? Well, I don't really know what you do. How are you going to answer that? So it's good to know something. And Absolutely. on top of that, I always say, create a couple bullet points for yourself. What I like to call your elevator pitch. We know you are amazing. This interviewer doesn't know who you are. How can you convey in the shortest period of time that you are a phenomenal, amazing human being? 
Well, the way you could do that is by setting up a couple bullet points, just your very short bio that conveys that you're learning regardless of your level, that you're passionate about what you do, that you're interested in tech, and that you're going to bring value to this company. So figure that out. And within 30 seconds into a conversation, you can do what I call peaking their interest because someone that has their interest peaked, they're going to pay attention to you a lot more. But I also say use real life scenarios of things that you've done. Meaning a very boring answer to this question would be, well, do you know SQL? Yeah, I know SQL. And a lot of people are going to answer that question that way. Instead, you can say, yeah, of course I know SQL because I created this application where it stored city data and it stored city names. And I was using SQL queries and all that and tables to store that data. That is a very robust answer that's going to help them remember you as opposed to the blah. Yeah, I know it. Everyone knows it. Yeah. Now you've given them real life tangible examples of what you can do. And you can use that in any language, whether it's Java, C Sharp, just use an example on a side project that you did. And that is why I'm so big about creating these side projects because it gives you multiple scenarios to bring that into conversation. But not only that, it's good to program your portfolio site because I always say that is your business card in tech. You know, to get forth, in my opinion, there's four things that help you, especially as a beginner or regardless of level, stand out in the interview process. One is you need to have a very strong LinkedIn profile because 90 million users on LinkedIn are upper management. They're hiring managers and decision makers for business. So why wouldn't you want to be popular in the area that they're popular in? Number two, you definitely need to have a good portfolio site. Like I said, it's your business card in tech. Number three, you have to have side projects that demonstrate your knowledge and abilities of the language. And number four, you have to have a resume that gets you through the door. And for me, portfolio sites don't need to be complex. Most hiring managers don't know anything about tech. They're not tech savvy. They're just there filling out a job ad. So you need to make something that's slightly aesthetically pleasing to where a non-tech savvy person says, oh, this person may know a thing or two. Oh, this is an impressive website. That's how you set yourself apart. And for the people that aren't front-end people, just buy a $30 template. And don't redo it in React so that it's super complicated and they can't click the button on the website. <laughs> please and and please don't write a React app for just like a, a static page. Please, please don't. That, do that's that. that's what I'm talking about. Is like people do their resumes and it's like, yeah. It. I mean, I'll it's good. This. It's good that they have something, but it's just it, there. But sometimes, with, if you just had used HTML on this, it would have been better than having like JavaScript that does. It's better to have something that works a hundred percent than it is to have something that's buggy. I think that's what I'm getting at. I I completely agree. And to just say this last thing, the portfolio site that I had that I turned down six jobs and countless interviews and I got several phone calls and the job that I got was literally made only in HTML and CSS. There was no way the site was breaking. It was reliable 100% of the time. It looked great. It did the job. And it had three sections, an about me section where it showed me doing my meetups. It had my resume and had my social links. And, you know, and a contact form thing. That's it. HTML, CSS. You don't need anything crazy complex. You just needed to do what you needed to do. And you do need a GitHub page. And if you have projects that have zero commits, make them private. Especially now that GitHub allows you to do things private. If you're starting a project as an idea, make it private. Don't, don't, I want to see, you know, three projects of yours that I can go click and just look at code and see is like, is this a boots the create bootstrap app 
or does this actually have content in it? Because so many times I go to the person's GitHub page, I have to click through six different repositories before I find one that has a commit other than initial commit and hello world or or whatever. Which I mean, like if that's all you have, I, I guess that's that's all you have. But definitely if you have something that's that like has solved a problem for yourself that scratched your own itch, make sure everything else is private and just have the stuff public and and make sure you have a screenshot of it you know, right at the top of the readme and have a how to install it. Because so many people assume, well, everybody must use Create React app or whatever flavor of the week tool it is. And so you've got this great app and you list out six features and I get clone it. And I'm like, now, now what do I do? Like, I don't know what your personal stack is. So I mean, if I'm lucky, I can just run NPM run build and it's going to create a dist or a public folder or something. But if that doesn't happen, like if I can't run npm install and npm run build, like, and even if I can, just put it in the readme of like what the instructions are to view it, and if it needs anything else, like a database or whatever. And if you can, if you can get it to a point where you've got a little script that builds the thing, and then you know can set up the initial database tables, and and you've got a screenshot, oh, perfect, I love it. All right, we Honestly, definitely need to get to picks. So I, I'm going to push this over there. Danny, if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you? All my social media is the same. It's the letter D, Thompson, and then Dev. So I live stream on Twitch. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on eHarmony. No, no, I'm just kidding. My wife will hate that joke. But, you know, I'm on <laughs> all, all my socials the same. D, Thompson, Dev. All right. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Well, let's go ahead and get some picks in real quick. But we'll try and make them fast. AJ, do you want to start us with picks? Yes, I do. Okay, so first of all, since we're talking about this resume stuff, I found a resume template that I really like. And I'm not an HTML CSS guy, but I was able to get in and tweak a couple things in the CSS to make it a little bit better for, for my use case. And I'm also going to link to my resume that's live. And, and basically, every time I'm courting a client and they want to see like a portfolio resume type thing, like this, this is what I use and I tweak it every single time I'm courting a new client. So I will, uh, I've got things that are commented out and I'll, I'll comment something out and then republish it or I'll add some new things in or whatever. Right. And sometimes I like to screen the clients. <laughs> so I give them the web page and tell them they can print to PDF it. <laughs> 
or, or well, not screen clients as much as recruiters. If ever I've got a recruiter contacting me about something, I'd, I'd try to see if they can do the work to do the print to PDF. But anyway, it's, it's print to PDF. So exactly what you see on the HTML template is exactly what the PDF becomes, minus like maybe a, a, a half of an EM of line difference on the, the total page size or something like that. And it just looks, I think it looks really nice and clean. If somebody else has got one to link to, I'd love it if, you know, people add that into the comments here as well. But, but I like it. Check it out. There's, there's a link to both the active one as well as the, the template itself and the couple modifications I made. And then I had a couple other things to pick for this week. I'll try to keep that uh, on the shorter side. Let's see where to go. There's a guy, okay, I've, I've been so frustrated and like I'm watching all these YouTube videos and I don't know if it's something about my behavior uh, what I've done, but I keep on seeing ads or video ads for beefy ends. It can't be something I've done because it's just the videos I'm watching. Cause it's like the content creators are doing their own special ad for VPNs <laughs> and VPNs are largely a lie. And there's a guy who was one of the guys I was rolling my eyes at with his stupid VPN ad at the beginning of his video. Well, he came back later and told the truth and went through one of his own ads like line by line and basically said, here's where I lied. VPNs don't really do this and here's why and explained it. And it's, I mean, like I was talking with a buddy of mine about this and he's like, you should do a video. And I came across this thing. It's exactly what I would have said almost word for word. So, you know, if you want to know the truth about what a VPN is and what it's for and what it does and what possible benefit it could have, I'm going to link to this. Well, let me tell you what the title is too, because I if in case you want to search for it rather than visit the link here, it's called this video is sponsored by blank VPN and it's by Tom Scott. And I'm, I don't know, it's kind of weird because he kind of bit the hand that feeds, but I'm glad that he finally, you know, came out and told the truth. I see so many people that obviously have no clue what a VPN is. And they're like, I signed up for such and such VPN and I've never been better in my internet super fast. And Da, 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 da. And I'm so glad I did it. And it's like, I know that you do not actually use this. You're just doing it because it's a sponsor. Anyway, that other way, I think I'll save. I got some other picks. I'll save them for next week, but I will, I will touch just briefly on one. Uh, Wisdom of the Ancients by Sir Francis Bacon. I started listening to it through a LibriVox recording. Uh, don't really know enough to say whether it's actually any good or not, but Seems kind of cool, uh, especially from the perspective of someone from hundreds of years ago. He sounds a little bit more sophisticated, and I guess it's translated too, so it, that probably helps. But it's just kind of interesting to think, you know, people hundreds of years ago had a lot of the same types of thoughts that modern, you know, people are having. They just had a different world to live and experience it in. But Wisdom of the Ancients is kind of like how he takes apart Roman stere- or stereotypes, not even stereotypes, but archetypes, I don't know what you call them, something to types and applies them to the modern, well, his world, his modern world of like why these things came to be and, and what they represent. I don't really know how to explain it other than that, but kind of cool thing. Steve, I know you need to pop over to views on view. Do you want to go next? Oh, I thought that was tomorrow. Anyway. Oh, that uh, is tomorrow. Yes. I got my days mixed up. My bad. Okay. Whew. I'd be worried there for a second. So <laughs> I'm going to, I got two real quick and one, I'm going to play off of AJ. XKCD has a classic cartoon, number 979, called Wisdom of the Ancients. And I refer to it all the time, and it's so funny. The short version of it is is somebody who is Googling an answer for some tech problem, and they find somebody that had the same question, but then they never posted an answer. And, you know, so the guy's looking at his screen going, 
who were you, Denver Coder? What did you see? Ah, oh, you know, because the answer was never posted. So that's one of my favorite ones, along with nerd, sip- nerd sniping and Bobby Tables. Second is, I'm going to go sort of a classic too. I got sucked into watching a very classic movie over the weekend, and I ended up recording it and going back and watching it later, and that's Casablanca. I hadn't watched it in probably 30 years since I was back in college, and I forgot how good of a movie that is and how absolutely stunning Ingrid Bergman was. But just a really good good movie all the way around. You know, one of those classics you hear quotes from all the time, but I really enjoyed sitting down and watching that one again. That's it. Awesome. Dan, what are your picks? Also start with a commentary on something that AJ said. So I just found this nice uh, quote about how uh, the, the wisdom of the ancients is still relevant today. The quote goes, the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So, you know, all our thoughts were basically, are essentially based on something from 2,500 years ago. Anyway, my pick, it's kind of a strange pick, I guess. So a month ago, our dog died. It was really, really hard for us. To an extent, we are still grieving. She was really a part of the family. She was nine years old, and it happened really unexpectedly and way too soon. My pick is actually the fact that we now adopted a new puppy. So it's it's not really a replacement. I still see her everywhere around the house. But we now have a bundle, a new kind of bundle of joy in the family with, with this new puppy. And he brings in lots of love and happiness. And we really enjoy taking care of him. So yeah, adopt a puppy or some other pet. So that's my pick for today. All right. Amy, what are your picks? Okay. I'm going to go with a tech one really quickly. So because I've been doing a lot more infrastructure stuff and having to level up in those areas, sometimes it can be hard to like all Amazon, GCP, like they have so many different services and some of them are not always named in my opinion and like the best name ever because it, the name doesn't always say like what it does and find, trying to find out what it does can lead you down like a really big rabbit hole. So uh, this is a post kind of giving like a very brief description of what the different services are for AWS. I think I picked one for GCP a couple of weeks ago. And then the other thing I'm going to pick, so... I think just because of like the nature of things going on, I've been trying to order more things off of Etsy as opposed to Amazon um, just to try to support uh, smaller business folks right now or people that might be trying to like make side income. And as one of those purchases, so I'm going to try to pick some more stuff off of Etsy uh, in the in the coming weeks. But I ordered some masks and these masks are, they're, like can double as like a scarf or if you're a girl or a guy, I guess you could pull your hair back with them, whatnot. But I figured those are a little bit more practical for me. So that'll be my other pick. That's it for me. Nice. So, so to Dan and Amy's picks, Dan, I'm trying to convince my wife to let me get a puppy. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Do it. Do it. And I uh, um, do it, but it needs to be in, in, you know, she needs, you, you can't, just, you know, drop it in her lap. I mean, uh, unless you know, she'll definitely say yes, because it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's, it's effort. Yeah. It's not quite a, it's not quite a child, obviously, but it's a lot of effort, certainly at the beginning and she needs to be prepared for it. Yeah. I totally get it. Uh, yeah. You have to house train them and stuff, but yeah. And then, uh, my four-year-old always reminds me, I don't have any hair. I'll tease her. You don't have hair, dad. 
that that's her comeback to everything. So anyway, my picks. So real quick, I'm still doing the one funnel away challenge. I think I might've mentioned that last week. I'm really, really super enjoying it. It is really helping me kind of get my head around some of the marketing stuff that I'm doing. And so I'm going to pick that. I also want to shout out real quick. We're doing conferences for React Native, React, Angular, and Vue. I'm starting to put things together for a leadership conference. So uh, keep an eye out for that. So I'm going to pick all of that. And then yesterday, we just went and uh, played kickball as a family and then had a picnic. And I've, I've spent quite a bit of time outside. The people on the call can actually see my face and it's bright red because I've been outside a bunch, got sunburned. But just getting outside has made a major difference for me. So I'm just going to tell people, hey, look, you know, go get outside. Uh, get some sun, get some air. My understanding is, is you know, the the coronavirus doesn't do so well outside, so that's just another reason to do it. But yeah, just go spend some time outside. Danny, what are your picks? So my picks, and it's kind of something on we discussed earlier about good YouTube channels. I have a couple mentors that you know I rely on wholeheartedly: Joe Ferguson and James Q. Quick. They're the reasons why. I know as much as I do about tech. So I definitely want to shout out James Quick. He has a YouTube channel, James Q Quick, and he has a couple of courses as well. And he really does. He used to work at Microsoft once upon a time, and now he works for AuthO as a developer advocate. Highly recommend checking out any of his YouTube or live streams. Also, I want to shout out uh, Brad Traversy, who is you know amazing at JavaScript and has amazing courses and YouTube channel as well. So you know, if that's something you're trying to learn, definitely go there as well as Florent Pop. He's also great at teaching JavaScript. So those would be picks that I choose if I want to learn anything about JavaScript. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Danny. Thank you for having me. Genuinely enjoyed every second of this. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up, folks. And until next time, Max out. Adios. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.